WIOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. Rick's Tire Service, family owned and operated on State Route 30 between Roxbury and Grand Gorge. Tires mounting and wheel balancing for cars, trucks, lawn, garden, farm, and construction vehicles. Open Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, Saturday, 8 till noon. More information at 800 LG Tires. 800 LG Tires. O'Connell and Aronowitz, attorneys at law since 1925 for legal representation, committed to fair treatment for all. From family law to constitutional law, estate planning to criminal defense, O'Connell and Aronowitz, 518-462-5601 or oalaw.com. Pika Moose Restaurant on State Route 28 in Big Indian with farm-to-table cuisine Thursday through Monday. Indoor dining from 4 to 9 p.m. Takeout till 10. Picamoose.com or 845-254-6500. 845-254-6500. I'm Dennison. I host Through the Looking Glass, where I discuss issues of culture, politics, and the environment with a little music on the side. Monday morning, 9 to 10, right here on WIOX Roxbury Community Radio. Live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, MTC Cable Channel 20, and WIOXradio.org.
Okay, you are listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and NTC Cable Channel 20, 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi, and everywhere at WIOXradio.org on computers or smartphones, and also with the Radio Garden phone app. This is From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan, John, and we got Zane. Hey. What's going on, Zane? Nothing much. Nothing much. Okay, John, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> got to go to a running start here. What have I been doing lately, right? Yeah, what have you been doing? A little shoveling. We've had some snow. I'm excited. I ordered some trees online for the spring. Yeah? So Delaware County has their tree and shrub sale. And I ordered some uh, shrubs, hazelnuts, um, cranberries, and uh, some dogwoods, and uh, a couple peaches and pears. Wow. Damn. So pick those up in April. That's cool. Huh. Reminds me, because last year I tried to get those cranberries, and they were <clears> sold <throat> out, so maybe I'll try. What's well. up with cranberries? I just had a member ask me about high bush cranberries. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. What was going on? I don't know. I Is just wanted to try some memo them. I didn't get? I just wanted to try them. Yeah, the, the site I'm looking for oh. has got a lot of uh, uh, shrub wells growing into it, so it's, it's pretty moist, pretty wet, but still well-drained, so I'll see if those cranberries do well. All right. Yeah, I have a spot that uh, I've lost two trees in in the last two years. So I think it's just too wet. Mm. But um, I don't know. In the summertime, it's not wet. I never get the mower stuck or anything like that. Mm. So maybe a cranberry there. Um, so they can tolerate wetter sites, is what you're saying? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Um, I've been maple sugaring. January has been sugaring month for me. It's wow. been crazy. And how you doing? Uh, I've been, my first boil was uh, January 2nd. And I've been tapped since then, boiling most days, doing well. Sugar content's been about 2.4, 2.6%. And I got sap snow yesterday. Really? No, no, a few days ago. A few mm. days ago. That was Friday, maybe? Anyway, it ran. So sap snow is something that I've heard about from the old timers, older people than me. And it's kind of like it'll be 36 degrees, 35 degrees out. And you don't think it's going to run because it's, you know, it's above freezing, but it's not warm. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's snowing. So that's two kind of things that are crazy. Like, one, the sap is running. And two, why is it snowing? So I researched this. And uh, long story short, way up there in the upper atmosphere, it's freezing. It forms snow. And then it, it can occur when there's just a thin band of above freezing temperatures near the ground and you know it just doesn't melt so apparently a snowflake can fall like one to two thousand feet before it becomes a dead raindrop uh, so if it's just above freezing near the ground it can survive and you'll see that snow falling despite it being 35 degrees so that's the mystery on that and then uh why the trees run so much you know i don't i don't really know totally but my hypothesis is this you ready let me know if this sounds crazy. I have one in my head, too, so I want to see if it's the same one. I think it's atmospheric barometric pressure. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. So um, Low pressure. I'm not a meteorologist, so I, I'm a little proud of this, maybe, but it could be completely wrong. <laughs> well, no, it makes sense. Usually low pressure brings in weather events, so yeah. rain and snow. So uh, Low pressure would mean that there's a 
less of a differential for that tree to exude the sap out of its stem. Right. Right. So it's like natural vacuum. Exactly. You know, the commercial producers create uh, artificial vacuum around the tap hole by creating a vacuum at the end of their pipeline. But this is like nature's vacuum, maybe. Because it'll be like 35, 36 degrees out, and they are just pouring. So that's pretty cool. The other cool thing about it is that it's really damn beautiful when it saps snow. Um, they stick, the snow sticks to all of the trees. And I went to go gather sap during the day on that day. There was so much snow on the branches and on the crowning canopy that it was actually dark under the sugar maples. Now, you'll get that on, under conifers, especially when they weigh down. But under sugar maple is pretty neat. Hmm. I mean, it was dark. Uh, you know, the bucket lids are full of snow. And the other, lastly, the last cool thing about it is that the sap is the best quality. So in the 40s, you'll get a little insects going on. In the 50s, there's tons of ants. And in the 60s, it's like, holy cow, you got to boil it right away before it goes bad. So in the 30s, though, the mid-30s, the sap is crystal clear. There's no insects, nothing to filter out. It's just the purest of sap you can get. Cool. So sap snow. <clears throat> You're a fan. I'm a fan. And it hasn't happened in a big way since 2013. 2013 was um, a lot of sap snow. I'd get out of my truck, and it'd be 35, and I'd be like, yeah, there's not going to be any sap. And they just ran like hell. You know, over two gallons a tap per day. So wow. I don't think I'll get anything today. I don't think it got up above 33 where I live. And it froze last night, so they had to, they had to break that. But throughout the night tonight, it's going to uh, actually warm up. There's a front coming in, and they should run tomorrow pretty good. That so. means you might have full buckets when you get home tomorrow if it's going to run all night or run earlier in the in the morning. Yeah, I, you know, I don't. It, it's a mystery whether how much they'll run tonight. Yeah, I don't know. Cool. You know, the other thing is the trees kind of do what they want. Sometimes it's, it's really difficult to predict what the hell they're doing. <laughs> they get tired, right? Yeah, you just don't know. Um, I don't know. You know, the wind matters. It is a south wind, I guess, a little bit today, so that can throw them off. But a north wind, they don't really run as much on the north side anyway, but a south wind will kind of slow them down or shut them off. I do believe in that now. I've seen it in the low 40s and not running with a strong south wind. Hmm. I've seen that with buckets. Can't tell you with tubing. It's different when you have a vacuum system on them. Well, yeah, the vacuums, you know, it's going to protect the tap hole so they'll run. But on uh, buckets, they're more exposed. But uh, anyway, that's my spiel on the uh, sugar. And I've never tapped this early, and uh, I plan on being done by mid-February. <laughs> that's awesome. So, so take that. All right. I don't know if I'm even going to try this year. I did tap one tree just to get some sap to drink Yeah, out of my yard, just to say I could do a little something. Nice. Oh, but yeah. I did. Uh, I did finally get my uh, toothware uh, information back on that black bear I shot back in 2021. Oh, really? Yeah, DC finally got their stuff together. And Jesus, they, you know what? They sent me a letter like six months ago. It said, "Get ready, we're going to send you your information soon." <laughs> worse than the DMV. <laughs> like what the heck? Yeah. Came back at 7.75 years old. No kidding, man. So almost rounded up eight years old. So how 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 much does that thing weigh again? This is a male. Male bear, we couldn't get it on a scale because we packed it out, but based on how much meat we brought back and 
calculating some other factors into it, we figured 250 to 285 was the would have been the weight of it. So seven, eight years. Yeah, cool. Yep. That's pretty neat. Yep, and then they post everybody's weights um, for that year. The oldest one on that chart was 25.75 years old. Oh, wow. Jesus. Imagine. <laughs> wow. I don't, they didn't post the weight with it, but that must have been a heavy bear, I assume. Not, not necessarily, though, I heard. <laughs> I've, I've heard anecdotally from other hunters. Oh, no? No. There can be bears. A uh, guy was telling me at the bar the other day that um, much smaller and they can be really old sometimes. Wow. Yeah. I'd like to know the, know the metrics on that. We'd have to ask a biologist, I guess. But most of, the, most of the bears on that chart that I got back, I would say there was, I don't know, 100 on that list. I didn't count it. But most of them were younger than mine. In the one to five-year-old, one to four-year-old was pretty common. Yeah. Um, but then it seemed like a lot in that seven, eight-year-old range, not a lot in between until you got into the mid-teens again. So what's going on with... Huh. Any of that early teenage-year-old bear that's not getting shot, it seems like. I don't know. Yeah, it beats me. <laughs> that was a mountain bear. That was a mountain bear. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's kind of like trees, you know. Uh, if they're in a good site and they got plenty of sunlight, they grow faster. So diameter doesn't necessarily indicate age. So, you know, a nice fat bear, if he's in the right site, got enough food around. Might not have to move, and therefore he might not cross paths with a hunter. Right? Yeah, I mean Pennsylvania has the biggest bears in North America, supposedly. Yeah, black, black bears. I looked that up. So um, I went by the Boone and Crockett um, information, right? So that's the the world record book for hunters, right? The Boone and Crockett Club. They're a conservation-based organization that metrics weight and antler size based on habitat. That's kind of what they're founded on. But now it's just more like a record book keeping. Yeah. Anyway, so Wisconsin was number one. Followed by Pennsylvania, followed by Alaska. Okay. For right. have, for most entries in the yeah. in the record books. No kidding. Yeah, Anything but yeah. my question on that is, I don't know, is um, what is uh, their laws on having to report them? And like New York State DC, up until like the mid '90s, early 2000s, you had to submit a tooth and have a biologist come visit your bear once yeah. you shot it. Now they don't care. The tooth that I sent out was voluntary. I didn't have to do it. You had to bring in the pelt and everything, didn't you? Uh, yeah, the biologist had to examine examine the bear. So Real my point is, is, is if the state, like Pennsylvania, I don't know what the rules are. Maybe they have to report every bear to a biologist. Well, there's going to be less bears that are world record class that slip through that way. When we did a radio show on Ursus Americanus, black bear, uh, I think Pennsylvania had an 800-pound black bear. That was the record wow. holder. Amazing. Yeah, so the... And it's kind of like wildlife like rules of law, right? The further you go north, the bigger the body size gets. That's true in white-tailed deer, true in a lot of species. Black bear is the only one that uh, goes against that rule. So the further you get south, the typically the bigger they get. Really? Really. Why? Like where? Because it's a winter metric, right? You need to you need to be larger to hold more body mass, more body heat to make it through the winter. Bears hibernate, so they don't need that as much. And in the in the southern states they have a longer growing season so there's more time to pack on the pounds in a growing season so you say north carolina has bigger bears they have big bears yeah they have big bears so that's why i question these record book metrics maybe north carolina you don't have to report the size or the age of the bear so it'll never make it into a record book yeah so uh, i don't know i think something to, something to think about but there's something about huh. i did not know that well tonight's show on from the forest is what's a timber tree worth and uh, we did a similar show maybe nine years ago. Wow. <laughs> so it's been a while. 
this show has not been archived, so we should do it again. Talk about, you know, for timber, what is a tree worth? We're not talking about its intrinsic qualities, Zane. Right. We're not talking about whether it's good for squirrels or pileated woodpeckers. Or if it looks beautiful. We're talking about the ultimate beauty contest of timber. All right. What's it going to sell at a song? Yeah, and timber is the biggest beauty contest. And what I mean by that, a tree's got to look pretty damn good. Straight, nice log, good crown. That means it probably healthy wood, sound wood. Yep. Defect free. So let's get into it. What is my tree worth? And the worst answer that I hate the most is it depends. Oh, damn. Man, you're a typical – there's usually a biologist that says that. People just shows. tuned out. Yeah. How many people just tuned out now? <laughs> well, just listen in. We'll teach you something maybe. Maybe. All right. So well, we, the landowner-logger relationship. So the logger knows probably more about the value of your trees in many instances just because they are the buyer. So if you ever look at a timber contract, there's the buyer and the seller, and the seller is usually you, the landowner. And the buyer is the logger. And then sometimes, and we usually recommend it, there's a contractor called a forester. Mm-hmm. That is the arbiter between arbiter or arbiter? Arbiter. Okay. Arbiter. Arbiter. <laughs> arbiter. I'm going to use that one now. Arbiter? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, between the landowner and the logger. So. That is the mystery of the forester. They're not rangers, and they are not arborists. They are foresters. So would you sell your car to a used car dealer or a home to a real estate agent without knowing what it may worth? No, that's what you have forester for. So you mark the trees. You get an inventory of those trees by species, size, and maybe age. But um, species and grade is really good to know. about you know A tree, just because it's um, a sugar maple... 14 inches at diameter at breast height isn't necessarily the same as another sugar maple 14 inches at breast height. Right? Mm-hmm. Could have limbs. Oh, yeah, all the factors. Crotches. Like how it grew over time. You're looking at me tree. like, what are you talking about? Like, uh, tree's, tree's a tree, right? <laughs> no. Yeah, you know that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Didn't know where you're going with it. <laughs> right, like a 14-inch sugar maple that's a sugar bush tree has multiple you know, leaders on it. Yep. It's not is not what we're looking for. Although we get asked about that all the time. Right? Why won't the logger take this tree next to my driveway? As a piece of garbage for timber. (laughs) (laughs) For timber. You don't like to call trees garbage. But for timber, you can. You can do that. Then it's okay. But that tree next to your driveway might boost your home value far more than what the tree is ever going to be worth in timber. Yeah. So things, things to think about. Things to think about. But we're talking about in the woods now. So... So all businesses want to maximize profits, and so should you. Um, you're, you're basically the logger is trying to buy your timber for the lowest amount and sell it for the most to the sawmill. And you say, oh, that's greedy. Come on. We all do this. When you go to the store, you're like, oh, the milk's five bucks? Well, uh, I want to pay eight. No, you don't. You're trying to get the most value out of the milk, out of that store person, just as much as they are out of you. And that's where we meet somewhere in the middle, and that's called the marketplace. I don't know. Maybe I have it wrong. What do you guys think? No, that's true. Market negotiations. Yeah, you see that a lot uh, when you're buying eggs now. I mean, egg prices are kind of all over the place. So are they? That's what I've been. Yeah, their prices are pretty high. So anywhere from four dollars to like nine dollars and some. 
Nine stocks. bucks. Yeah. Is that golden eggs, huh? Damn. Per dozen, yeah. Those, those organic cage-free chickens? Oh, yeah. Everything. Oh, yeah. I got cage-free chickens, but not organic. You know, what do you got you, John? Let's not talk about timber. Let's talk about chickens. <laughs> <laughs> Mine are uh, carnivorous meat-eating chickens this time of year. Oh, yeah, like mini T-Rexes. I freeze all my deer scraps. <laughs> and uh, this time of year when they're starving and craving protein, that's what the chickens get. Oh, that's a good idea. Nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah it cuts, cuts down on feed costs a little bit. No kidding. Yeah. You know, imagine if your chickens gained size by 20 times. They would tear your head off. <laughs> We'd be done. 20-foot <laughs> chicken run there. Oh, my God. They're scary-looking guys. Thank God they're small. Anyway. So what can be done if you're uh, wanting to sell some timber? You can hire a forester. That's what we usually recommend. Uh, if you've got a small property, though, right, it might not be worth it. And then what do you do? Well, you can either team up with all the other small properties around you to make one big property and make it more uh, appealing. Uh, or you can get creative, and, and it's, it's going to be a lot tougher for you, but you might be able to find different avenues to sell that timber or reduce the price and make it more, more appealing. Yeah. It, it should go out the bid. Even if they're strictly for money, you should use a forester in most instances because you can compete on price. If your forester has an accurate cruise or inventory of your timber, now they can put it out the bid, and, and the buyer, the loggers, are competing on price. Now, the more you ask of that logger to do to clean up your roads and to put it to bed and to put down perennial and annual grasses on all the skid trails and all yeah. that, which you should do, that is going to come out of the price and out of the bid price, right? Yeah. But those things should do because they, they do what? They're investing in your property. You know, The next Irene will be back. And when you get 30 inches of rain falling on the ground, uh, it becomes very apparent that you did not put in the best management practices to take water off your skid trails. <laughs> right. Yeah. They yeah. become streams. They become deep ravines soon Soon after. Damn. A lot of those hiking trails on DC Forest Preserve land are just old tan bark or logging roads. And uh, sometimes it's hard to tell whether they're not a stream. Because No, they're a road. They just were never maintained. Mm-hmm. Now they're cobble. Now they are. Yeah. You, sometimes you can't tell. You're like, oh, this is not a stream. This is too straight. Oh, this is a road. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm thinking of, uh, oh, the road that goes over from Balsam Lake Mountain to the Beaver Kill in places is like that. It definitely is. Yeah. Ironically, we were just talking about my bear. I shot him on a day that was so darn crunchy, I was using one of those log roads to rock hop and huh. move quietly through the woods. I was yeah. standing in one of those when uh, I walked up on him. <laughs> that raw hop and stuff's good, good stuff. Done that once or twice on a bear. Yep, it Even, works. Yeah, let the rocks be your friend. So, um, where were we? Yeah, so Forrester can put it out to bid. They can also put something in contract to make sure before they take that equipment away that uh, you know certain things are done. They can also post a bond to further ensure. <laughs> that uh things are done right that's what your forester can do and they can help you meet your goals and objectives as well how do you hopefully. how do you have a good relationship with a forester buy a beer pretty enforced <laughs> <laughs> and then what no what, if you, what beer? if you run out of beer <laughs> i don't know uh you know it's it's like anything else uh sometimes people don't really communicate very well with each other um or what what yeah. to expect with a working with a forester I mean, obviously, I'm biased. I'm going to say call the Catskill Forest Association and kind of 
that way you can kind of be clear about what your objectives and goals are to tell your private consulting forester if you're managing for timber. Right. That's what I would recommend. That's kind of like why we, the Catskill Forest Association, exist is to kind of educate the landowner. But, yeah, know what you want to do. What What is right. it you want this for? Do you want it for wildlife, timber, both? Sometimes they are mutually – they can be done at the same time. Sometimes they can't, wildlife and timber. Those are the two biggest goals people manage for. Well, timber is actually more down on the list. People usually manage for timber when they have to, meaning they're in a hard place nowadays. Mm-hmm. wasn't in the past. It was something people actually did deliberately but now it seems like people manage for timber like oh crap those taxes are damn high <clears throat> i need ten thousand dollars even what can you get yeah or i'm gonna have yeah. a development and you know I'm, I'm cashing out i can't afford this property anymore and before i do that i will liquidate my best timber that's not forestry that's just uh what we would call mining hmm. extractive extract yeah <laughs> right so um, terminology, a cruise. Well, real quick, go over this terminology. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is what's a timber tree worth? But terminology, cruise. We're not talking about like driving on the road. It's an inventory of your trees. So, Zane, answer your question. Know what you want to do with your property, but also know some of the terminology. So when the forester says these things, they should explain this, right? Because a good mm-hmm. teacher always kind of uh, explains, defines the terms that they're using when they're when they're speaking. But if they don't do that, then maybe find out beforehand. So a cruise is an inventory of your trees. The purpose is for determining volume. Volume. That's right. Mm-hmm. Or value of standing trees, which would be called stumpage, by the way. Reliable estimate of the area. Um, they basically they don't tally every tree, although sometimes there is a 100% tally of marked trees. But usually they can – if they're cruising for timber, they'll take a prism – and it does a calculation. I'm not going to get into it, but it's a sample, and it's a plot, and then you basically extract that over a stand and or per acre, which makes a stand, and then they can kind of know by looking at the map as well, aerial photos and stuff, okay, I have this amount of sugar maple, ash, basswood, beach, beach is terrible, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's an accurate estimate. Yeah, it's a weird thing, forestry. It's one, not only is it the longest-term rural usage, but it's trying to predict the um, outcome of something before it's done. Like you're trying to trying to think about how many board feet you have of something that is standing on a tree in a cylinder. It's very strange. But there's three calculations that do that, but I'll get into that later. Does that make sense? It's kind of like... I heard this in financing. It's like a futures market. It's like you're, it's it's what it's going to be worth in the future. That's yeah, like, well, that God, uh, taking me back to that would be like net present value and all that crap. I didn't want to get into that. <laughs> Come on, Zane, you're killing me. I had the worst <laughs> economics teacher. The guy, he never defined the terms. That guy. I remember we're about a month into that class, forest economics, and I looked over at this girl and. She looks back at me, and I go, I don't know anything this guy's saying, but do you? She goes, I thought I was the only one. <laughs> no one knew what was going on because he had never defined any of the terms, man. But anyway, we're like – he's acting like we know this. I'm a, like a sophomore or whatever. I don't know what the heck's going on. <laughs> anyway, so merchantable height is another thing to know. It's the length of merchantable material in a tree. So they do this in logs. 
right? What was it 16 feet, John? 16 feet. 16 feet. See, uh, they use a device like a Biltmore stick, and you walk out like a chain and a half, I think. I'm really digging back here. And then you look back, and you have to line it up with your eye in a certain way to the stump, and it will give them a certain amount of feet or logs. And then you estimate that with a diameter and use a calculation, Scribner, Doyle, or a quarter-inch rule, and that will give you board feet. Estimated. Estimated. Hmm. Now, some forces are really good at this, and some really piss off loggers and say, <laughs> man, I bid it on something that's not there, and they get screwed. To the so, point where if they work together often enough, the loggers will know how to bid per forester. Right. <laughs> bid high, bid low, because they know who's, who's marking the timber. Exactly. So the foresters and loggers get to know each other pretty well, um, and some of them like each other, and some of them probably don't like anything else. But anyway, and, you know, foresters learn. Um, they probably start out marking trees that can't be cut because they're in a spot where it's like, hey, how am I supposed to cut that tree? Right. I can't get equipment in there. Why don't you know that? And it's because they don't know that because they haven't seen how the operation occurs yet. Makes sense. That makes sense? All right. Well, that's good. So DBH is diameter at breast height or four and a half feet above the ground measured on the high side of the tree. Don't be trying to measure it on the low side, Zane. <laughs> Saying on a slope. High side. Yep. And everything's a slope in the Catskills, so high side. <laughs> One board foot. Uh, a board foot, John. You want to go into the, what a board foot is? Sure. Um, if you can picture a board that was cut square, that's 12 inches by 12 inches square, and it's one inch thick, that is one board foot. A board foot is not square footage. It is a volume calculation, so that can be morphed, right? A board foot... Uh, excuse me, a two-by-four, which most people can visualize right now quickly in their mind, a two-by-four, eight feet long that you can go buy at any box store, has 5.3 board feet of volume in it. Uh, it's 144 cubic inches of wood, and you can extrapolate that because we've been cutting trees and milling trees for so long. Uh, we can estimate board footage on a, a cylinder, on a standing tree, per species, uh, based on different scales, knowing the average taper of the tree, and do it on the ground with an accurate estimate. Oh, man, it's coming back. That was called a Gerard form class, and they use different cla form classes by species. Mm -hmm. It's crazy stuff, what people have. And, but John's, John's the mill master, so he knows his, uh, his board footage, board feet. Footage or feet? Zane. Got me. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I like footage. <laughs> board right. footage, yeah. Yeah, I like footage, too. Let's go with that. Um, so, for example, 16-inch tree, DBH, DBH, one log, 16 feet, is about approximately 100 board feet. Okay? Mm -hmm. Depending on which log rule you use. Remember, there's different ca algorithms that you can use. In some regions of the state, it's different. Some regions use Doyle. Some regions use Scribner. Some use International Quarter Inch. I think in the Catskills, we use, uh, oh, man. Doyle? I think we use Doyle. I think it's Doyle. Yeah. Okay, 20-inch tree with two logs, 600 board feet. So big difference, right? So if you were to cut the 16-inch tree and its crown was still good, it's worth a lot now. But if it had room to grow another 5, 10 years... You would have lost out on that 28, on that maybe a 20-inch tree or so, right? And it's worth a hell of a lot more. So knowing when to cut and when to wait 
Maybe the market could be better in the future. Those are things that your forester can help you with. All right. And your forester can't know everything. Um, we don't know, like, what trees are going to be worth a lot in the future sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, we just don't know. Um, so anyway, sawmills are strange in that they are one of the only industries that purchases its raw material based on what is, is expected to yield, which is what we talked about before. Um, logs or saw logs are sold by how many thousand board feet they will yield while still in log form. So you see a log truck going down the road. Uh, it carries about 3,000 board feet, a typical-sized one. Uh, a longer one will carry about approximately five to 6,000 board feet. I'm with you. That That's it. I don't, wasn't going to go more into that. Okay. Did you want to? Well, yeah. No, no, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. Yeah, so... Uh, you got to remember per thousand board feet. So it's a really a volume game. So we're going to get into why trees are worth so much, but you need a lot of volume to make something worthwhile to bring in all this equipment sometimes. Yeah. Um, other measures of other measures out there are cordwood, which would be like you know for pulp and paper. We don't have a low grade market very much in the Catskills, which is unfortunate because it it basically. The less markets you have, the less diversity you have in markets, the fewer options your forester has to practice good forestry mm. because they can't cut those competing trees with the, that are competing against the better quality trees if they have no low-grade market, which is a shame. Mm. Why we need more sawmills. Anyway, weight. Some mills are now buying their wood by weighing it. This is more about chips, which, again, we don't have, unfortunately. Um, I don't know if they still do in New Hampshire. In New England, I've heard that those markets are not what they used to be. But woody biomass is what we're talking about. Wood chips, a large trailer will hold about thirty to 40,000 pounds of chips. Um, so, yeah, trucks of pulp wood can be even heavier. And up next we'll talk about, um, now that you know how things are measured, we'll get into maybe how it's, how it's worth, what it's worth, all that. Okay.
All right. Love Plus One. That song has nothing to do with forestry. And this is From the Forest. Every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., talk about a different forest-related topic. Tonight's topic is what's a timber tree worth? We talked about some terminology and who's involved, like the forester, who is the contractor between the landowner and the logger, the logger, who is the buyer of timber, and the forest owner, who is the seller of timber. And so... Let's get into it. Um, what is it. What is it worth? There is no blue book value. Uh, there's no set prices by the government, although the D.C. does publish a stumpage report hmm. every year, as far as I know. Quarterly. Quarterly. Okay. Hmm. Touche. Quarterly broken up by region, so you can check out Central New York, Adirondacks, um, Catskills. Let me give you an idea. However, um, you know, at the end of the day, your baseball card is worth as much as what someone will buy for it. So, same thing with timber. Prices are negotiated between a willing seller and a willing buyer, taking into account many factors. These factors change all the time. Uh, for example, like how close are you to a mill? How right. how long is your skid trail? You know, when I was uh, involved more in the Empire State Forest Products Association. I was really surprised to hear that the Catskills, you would think the Adirondacks would have really long skid trails just because it's, you know, they have more remote areas. It's not true. Catskills has the longest skid trails in the whole New York State pretty much. We have like one to three miles. Guys have to skid them out, and it's because we have no haul roads. Back in the day in the Adirondacks, they have a whole dendritic pattern of haul roads when the paper companies are there. So they can get a truck way up into the woods, and they don't have to skid very far to those haul roads. It's not the case. I remember one time I was uh, bushwhacking off of Pekamoose Road, mm -hmm. and there's a big landowner in there. That guy was up on Samson Mountain, and, he, I mean, that had to be three miles. And it, 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 I, I could hear him cutting, and then for the rest of the day, he was just hauling timber out. It was just forever you know what i mean wow and there's other areas on that same property that i just i know how far they were skidding it a long skid trail okay so how's that affect price right diesel fuel wear and tear costs everything just went up time you're paying someone to sit in that machine for more mm. more time per skid yeah absolutely you know so how steep it is uh the more steep it is you, pr you probably should have more water bars well water bar is a device to take off water so it doesn't run down your skid trail and skid road and cause erosion so if you're going to have those that's going to come off the price um proximity to the landing which is where you stage logs do you have a place to put a landing is it easy to get to sometimes people have the best timber but in order to get the logs out they got to go through their neighbor's property and the neighbor they hate them or they don't want to see any trees cut now we have an issue we got to go all the way around. Maybe you got to cross a, a stream, or there's a deep ravine, and there's a permit involved, or you got to build a bridge, or, or something else crazy. If it's a trout stream or any kind of stream manipulation, it might need a permit by the state of New York, which is the DC. But every town's different. Some towns are real pain in the butts. Um, they offer a lot of information that is very onerous. And that's gonna you're gonna pay for that. If the logger has to get that, or the forester has to go through all those permits, then that can be a problem. If they have to wait for the building code enforcement officer to walk the boundary line because they have to deem whether it's aesthetically pleasing or not, 
that's going to come off the price. I'm thinking of one town in particular, Town of Warsing. I think it was. Anyway, um, let's see. I think it was Town of Warsing. There's one of those towns down there. Let's see. Is the road posted anywhere along its length against heavy loads? Um, yeah, is it an easy road? Can the road take it? You know, We don't know. Is it a county road, state road, or a town road? If it's a town road, it can be a good thing or a bad thing because some towns, again, are paying the butt. Oftentimes, a, towns seasonally will post the road to wait, like in the spring when the thaw is coming out. So there might be a whole month or two long period where you cannot even move wood. Yeah. So all that kind of matters. Um, market conditions, other things. Like sugar maple prices n- normally go up in the winter months. Um, do you know why that is, John? Because sugar maple is a white wood. So, yeah, so that's hot right now. White wood markets, that's that's a world market kind of thing. Um, you could typically walk into anybody's house and, and guess what time frame it was built in, right? Uh, I'm thinking of like my mother's house, late 80s. It's got oak cabinets, oak floors. It's a dark wood time, 90s, cherry, still dark wood time. Now, you walk into anybody's house that's been built recently, everything's white. It's uh, sugar maple countertop, sugar maple cabinets, sugar maple this, ash flooring, light white woods. And that's a world market. depends on who's who's a booming middle class right now. It's China, right, or it was China in the last 10 years. And they wanted white woods. So that drove up. That affected Catskill Mountain wood prices. Um, but anyway, why sugar maple is worth more in the winter months? Because it's got to stay white. Uh, it's it's a the the, uh, the sapwood's white and it's easy to stain with all those sugars in it. Um, oh, right. On a July day, mold can grow quickly. The, and the similar sapwood, there's heartwood and sapwood. You want to explain that to people because that matters. If you're looking at a veneer of sugar maple, it should have almost all sapwood, right? Yeah. So the most valuable um, sugar maple are going to have like half dollar or even quarter size hearts. Little tiny. When you look at the cross grain section, there's going to be a dark wood area and light wood area. The more because sugar maple, the sapwood's worth more. The light wood is worth more. You need to have more uh, proportion of that. Um, different site conditions, ages, how the tree grew its whole life will affect that. Um, but if you've got mostly sapwood in your trees, then you've got a more valuable sugar maple, but you need to keep it white. And that's why uh, cutting it in the frozen time in the winter time is going to yield the most potential value of it. Cherry is the opposite. Cherry and red oak, opposite. They're a uh, dark wood, and the heartwood is what's desired. So you need to have very little sapwood, um, an inch or two or less around the ring, and then uh, the whole core needs to be dark. Yeah, that's amazing. Wet seasons, like um, right now it's wet, even though it's snowing out and we think it's not. The ground is very muddy. Yeah. So this is not a good time to be logging. And wet seasons create low log inventories of mills because the loggers aren't working as much. So you want frozen ground, which doesn't occur that much in the Catskills, or dry summer. It's really the best time. Do you know uh, someone once told me that mill prices go up? The opening week of deer season typically <laughs> i believe it because mills dry up they need wood and then all the loggers are out there deer hunting not cutting wood i thought the guys just shoot them from their skitter i don't know this is all just hearsay don't heck? go by don't go by what i say put it on the i'm just joking come on i'm not i'm just messing around i don't know if they do that so if you have valuable <laughs> valuable trees you know get a truckload to the to the mill uh third week of november during uh, thanksgiving <laughs> right yeah 
No kidding. Um, what else? So we didn't really talk about defense. You want to talk about that way a log looks, you know, or a tree when it's on the stump? <laughs> so many. What's things. a forester looking for? Yeah, a lot of things. Um, well, it's gonna. The beauty contest is really going to say it all, right? We kind of said that in the beginning. If you can look at it, and it doesn't take a forestry degree to know that. If it looks like a beautiful tree, uh, it's going to have a, a, a healthy crown, but the stem ratio or crown ratio is going to be relatively low, right? It's going to have a long stem versus the proportion of, of crown that's up there. You don't want um, like a like a sugar bush tree we talk about all the time or a roadside yard sugar maple you might predict has eight foot of stem and then 60 feet of crown. That's not going to yield much uh, valuable uh, valuable volume of, of timber there. You want something that's got 50, 60 feet of stem and 20 feet of crown, 30 feet of crown at the top, right? So you yeah. can sell most of that stem. Um, if it's been... If it's along an old skid trail and it got bumped, you know, 15, 20 years ago in the last timber sale and it rubbed the bark off, um, that's going to create a, a column of deadwood in the tree and that's going to be a defect. If trees in the forest and another tree fell into it a long time ago, uh, same thing could happen. If there was a fire, you know, this really isn't something that we worry about in the Catskills, but in the south, we get, you know, they get a ground fire and it burns one side of the bark. That's going to create a defect in the yeah, wood. Usually the uphill side. On the uphill side where debris can, you know, can, can burn hotter longer that's, that's built up. Uh, low crotches, crotch wood, not good. Old branches that didn't, um, didn't heal over, not good. Hardware. Uh, I looked at trees for someone today that um, along an old stone wall, beautiful looking tree, great perfectly cylindrical red oak but uh you can see in the bark uh foresters might call it a cat face uh, i don't know why they say it looks like a cat's face literally when the bark heals back over around this yeah. this uh included uh barbed wire that i thought was in the tree it doesn't look like a cat to me but <laughs> maybe <laughs> right. scratch but uh but yeah <clears throat> tap holes <clears throat> tap holes yeah if it's an old sugar bush uh, in certain markets, if you could find the right buyer, it might increase the value, but not in a large scale. You not normally. Local, not normally if you're selling it to a big mill. If there's yeah. any chance of hardware in it, yard trees out the window, not going to sell. And because of tap holes, it creates staining. So any kind of shot at veneer, veneer yeah. might be over. Um, right? I would think so. Yeah, any chance it could be hollow. So if you look at the root flares and you can see some exposed soil around one of the root flares maybe you can stick your boot in there six inches that's probably a good chance that tree could be hollow in there what about mineral rot <clears throat> mineral rot <laughs> <laughs> um certain trees is that what you say i i don't even know uh what causes it so i don't i don't know um hemlock um the that's, like, that's like the magneto with engines in it. i don't really understand it totally yeah, it's I, Magneto. I, I know what it is. I know what. Uh, oh, you know what a Magneto is. I know what a Magneto <laughs> is. I actually, could all explain right, a Magneto. Right. Yeah. Bad, bad analogy. Bad analogy. Um, hemlock shake, right? Gary Mead talked about this last week. There are trees that are exposed to high winds at one point in their life. Rings separated within the hemlock. They're susceptible to that, but there's absolutely no indication on the stump. No way to know. No way to know until you cut the tree. So it's it's hard to bid stumpage on standing trees. Know it's guess it's worth and uh, pay a landowner before you even cut it if you don't even know what's in there. I mean, loggers are a brave bunch, man. Not only is the job the most dangerous on land, but they're taking a shot sometimes. Trees can look beautiful. You open them up and 
darn terrible. It's happened. Yeah, yeah, but man, it's also the lottery. You can you can oh sure you can bid low and and score big sometimes. But yeah, it's but tough. you know it's, it's you know it is a lot of work though to do that. I mean, you, you want to definitely be on the right side or whatever. Yeah, edge your bet somehow. Yeah, that was a little so. You can cut a small stand of timber, um, like, you know, less than five acres if it's really good timber, like has beautiful cherry and sugar maple, high-grade species. But usually scope is going to win out, right? So guys are looking at maybe 30 acres or more. A lot of times we get asked that, like, oh, I got a few acres. Will a logger be enticed? No, they got to be able to fill at least a log truck or two, right? I mean, it's it's got to entice. To move all that equipment has to be worthwhile. But back to the small acres, there was a, a property uh, in Margaretville, maybe a few acres. It's just beautiful cherry, really nice. But they all had the, I was told, mineral rot. <laughs> but they didn't, they didn't saw out very well. But you would never be able to tell from the outside. So, yeah, I mean, you just never know. The opposite could be true. You know, in, in Western New York, I know of some uh, some small stands of two and three acres of black walnut that. Everybody was drooling over and, and sold big. So yeah. it can go either way. Yeah, absolutely. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is what's a timber tree worth? So we don't have that much time left. But um, let's see. Yeah, you, you got to have it's, – it's economies of scale. you got to have a certain amount of trees. And, and we're not talking about like quarter-acre lots or five, ten-acre normally, usually more than 30 acres, 50 acres plus. Um, logger requirements. So what's a logger looking for? Um, yeah, it, it's the forester has to play. Everyone's got to get paid. As a forester told me years ago, everyone's got to get paid. So you can ask that logger to cut out some of the trees that are not worth anything. And since we don't have a low-grade market, that's costing money. So a tree that's 10 inches in diameter, there's no market for that tree really in our area. So... It doesn't pay its way out of the woods, but it still costs something labor to cut it. So he'll cut a few of those if you mark them, but eventually he's got to get paid. So there's got to be a certain amount of trees that maybe you could have held on to a little longer, but they're worth money now. And maybe in the best type of forestry, you would have waited for that oak another 10, 15 years, but you had to cut it now to make it, make it work. So that's the kind of the balance the forester has to do with paying the logger, paying himself, and making the landowner healthy, um, happy while trying to practice good forestry. But anyway, logger requirements. Sometimes top logging. People want – loggers have been really well trained in this, and I don't think it's the best thing, to make it neat. I mean, and it's totally the landowners have almost trained loggers to make – oh, we'll make it neat. It's not necessarily a good thing. One, is dangerous as hell. You got to go top lop and lop all the tops to the ground, and a lot of this comes from Western forestry or something where you're trying to make it less uh, fire retardant, more fire retardant. We don't really have fires here uh, once in a while, but it's, it's extremely rare. It's not necessary. In fact, the messier, in most instances, the messier, the better, especially for wildlife and forest regeneration, where you're trying to get some regenerating seedlings to grow by creating an obstacle course for deer. So it's not necessary in most instances from a natural resource perspective to make it neat. But a lot of people do ask loggers to lop all the tops and stuff, no? 
Right. So imagine if it takes 10 minutes per top or five minutes per top, and there was, you know, four or 500 trees that got cut on a hundred acre site, you know, that's a lot of time. And if the logger doesn't have to do that, yeah, all of a sudden he doesn't have to pay someone all that time. And it, the, the bid becomes more attractive and you get more money out of it. Absolutely. So he's looking at how much top logging there is or lopping the tops, cut, cutting down unmerchantable trees, balancing that with merchantable trees. How much road and landing work do I have to do? How what? How high is that performance bond? How much do I have to lay out? The firewood. I want you to give me ten cords of firewood. The owner says, "Well, that that that's it's ten lot. cords. He can't sell that's ten cords, man. <laughs> you know that you got to move as well, right? Uh, labor costs, fuel costs, diesel. Holy cow, diesel. Whoa, I don't even know what that's done to price. It's coming down, but holy cow. I think that's why Zane's talking about nine dollar eggs. We're finally hitting home on some of this ag cost from last summer." Everything, chains, diesel, you name it, um, you know, skitter tires. I don't even know what skitter tires. I imagine it's a lot. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, millions, I don't know. Millions. Hydraulic fluid, you name it. Chainsaws, whatnot. And labor. Labor's the most expensive thing. You know, a lot of these loggers, I feel like they don't want to work alone. Maybe some do. Maybe some do. But you can't find anyone that wants to work, do this job with them anyway. But even if you could, paying them is difficult. Um, workers' compensation is, is the highest. This is the highest workers' comp job, I believe, in, in the state. Um, so it's hard to find people to work with you, which is um, makes the job more laborious but also more dangerous because, you know, you get hurt. There's no one there next to you. Interest rates. So all that stuff matters to the logger. Forester requirements. How much boundary line work? The magnitude of the inventory, the level of the job supervision. How often does he have to be there to make sure the logger is doing his job? Sometimes they have a good relationship. Knows he doesn't have to be there. They know each other. Timber stand improvement. Um, is he marking the right trees? You know, a lot of people want to blame loggers for cutting all those good trees and, and, and uh, leaving all the worst ones. Guess what? Just because you have a bachelor's degree doesn't mean you don't high grade either. There are plenty of foresters who have high-graded, who have marked jobs in the woods that were terrible high-grade. And it's hard to, hard to say whether they did it on purpose or not. I, I, probably on purpose, <laughs> right? Especially if you're, being, maybe if you're being paid on percentage, you have an incentive to do that. Or if you're being paid by the hour or by the job, who knows? But they all have their advantages and disadvantages. Uh, permitting required. Some foresters just don't want to work in certain towns because they're a pain. They're just a pain. Uh, types of local... I already said that, logging ordinances. I don't know why I said that twice. All right, so you can check out the New York State DEC stumpage report. That can give you an idea of the re of the prices paid for stumpage in your region. Uh, each region has different log rules. Like we said before, Scribner in southern New York is, is the log rule we use. International quarter inch in eastern New York and the Doyle in western New York. So I guess it's Scribner. John, hmm. Southern New York. The bottom line is there are a lot of trees out there. Let's make sure we're growing the good ones and hire a forester so you can maximize your investment and meet some of your goals. Are, are these uh, yeah. these stumper reports? Are they like are easy to read for say the the, the average landowner? Or is mm -hmm. it just a huge spreadsheet and you're looking at it? You don't know what to make sense. It's of? easy. You're going to go to region and then you're going to look at species like cherry sugar maple whatever and then you're gonna look at the low medium and high price so they're gonna average out between all the mills in that region what was the low average 
what was the median and what was the highest price sold. Look at the medium because you probably yeah. have medium wood. Well, that's that all the time easy. we have. Some tips are you don't have to manage your whole forest. You could just manage the best sites that are the best for growing timber. Remember, this is the ultimate beauty contest. There are some programs out there, New York State Forest Tax Law Program, 480A, the Watershed Ag Council Management Assistance Program, which can help with this as well. That's all the time we have. See you next week. Good night. All right. were flashing and the icy wind did blow The water seeped into his shoes and the drizzle turned to snow His eyes were red, his hopes were dead and the wine was running low And the old man came home from the forest His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street